Cultural Discipleship, spoken by Pastor Daniel Hill. Oh, good morning, Metro Community Church. It, oh, you guys are lively compared to the first service. Nothing against them, but uh, I didn't get a good morning from them. So uh, it's good to be here with you. I love this church dearly. I've actually been able to be here a couple times before, just never have spoken. So I always love being here. In fact, I was Insta-storying um, the, what a beautiful name it is. I know you guys didn't write that song, but I've heard it every time I've been here. And actually, every time I ever hear that song, I think of your community. So um, literally every time I come down the radio, I go, oh, Metro. I love Metro. This is the church I would be at. It was up to, well, I would be at my church. I love my church. But assuming I wasn't at my church and I could go anywhere in the country, I would be here. I'm in Chicago. So it is a joy to be here with you. Um, I love what you guys are doing here. I think it's important you know the work you're doing here not only is impacting Inglewood and the surrounding area and even New York City, but you're very much in the national conversation of folks in churches that are trying to wrestle with somebody's complicated tensions through the lens of faith and how to engage with race and justice and other kind of things. So I affirm and honor the good work that's happening in the hunger level. Um, there's just an appetite in the church to grow and to understand, and I feel it every time I'm here, and I'm inspired by that. So I love it. And if you're new, you should totally join the church. It's a great place. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I also love about you, it's a very sharp and high-capacity place, and I need to lean on that heavily today because we're going to move really fast, all right? Um, I already talk fast as it is. I figure, why take an hour to say something if you can say it in 30 minutes? So I'm going to try to basically talk at double speed. But um, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to introduce two words. That, not really introduce. They're words that will be very familiar words to you. They're not going to be words that you've not heard of before. Um, I will, however, try to explore them in a way that may or may not match how you've thought about these words before, and then we'll take kind of a biblical look at them. So let's do a little call and response, if you don't mind. Just make sure we're together. Just say the two words with me that we're going to be exploring today. First, identity. identity. Great. Second, race. race. That'll be the harder one. Identity one will be fun. The race will be a harder one. They're both important to look at. I'm going to look at them separately first. We're going to look at identity, look at a passage, and then come to race, and then try to kind of, at the end, come back and take a look at how I think biblically... Knowing God, following Jesus, being filled by the Spirit, how that should shape the way that we engage with these things. So we'll start with identity. Sound good? Uh, identity, a very wide-ranging topic. Much, 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 much has been written on it from all different kind of perspectives. You know, couldn't summarize the full body of research. But when you look at identity, study identity, there's really two driving questions that are behind identity. Right? From the minute we're born throughout the course of our life, there's two questions that in some form or another we're all asking. Repeat these one more time with me, if you will. Just repeat the question with me. Who am I? And how do I fit in the world? All right? Those are really two of the common questions that inform identity. We've got kind of our own individual experience of that. We've got a communal lens of it, looking at how our family, our friends, our adult support network, how our culture shapes the way we answer those. But that's so much like if you actually could be fully self-reflective of your identity, that's probably what you would be coming in contact with is what are the different forces, the different voices, the different experiences that have answered those questions? Who am I? How do I fit into the world? And when you study kind of cognitive development, from the, from the time a baby is born, they're hearing messages about that. Right? Parents, grandparents, family members tend to be the early answerers to those questions. Who am I? How do I fit in the world? And it's really in adolescence, you know, middle school, uh, high school, where you start to take that upon yourself, where you start to become more self-conscious of who am I and how do I fit in the world. You start to look for reference points in the world that help you guide it. And one of the fun and funny exercises that I wish we could have time for, it would be fun to just break into groups and say, to the best that you can, go back into your adolescent years and try to answer the question, who did I look to? 
Like, as I try to figure out who I am, right, like which group, because I think everybody does this in high school, right? It's kind of like you look at a group and say, is that the group I'm in? Like, am I the cheerleader group? You know, am I in the athletes group? Am I in the, like, nerdy but cool intellectual group, right? Am I in the, like, goth, dark kind of group? Like, which group kind of identifies who I am, right? And uh, uh, when I did the self-reflective exercise, as Pastor Peter mentioned, uh, uh, I, I really realized that when I was coming into my own sense of identity, it just happened to be the time in human history in the United States of America where the invention of the boy band had happened. Um, I, I think they were one of the first. I really couldn't figure out who I fit in with. And then out of nowhere, from the heavens, came the acronym NKOTB, which, oh, some of you are old enough to know what that was, or you've watched, what, I don't know, I was going to say VH1. Does that channel even exist anymore? Whatever. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, New Kids on the Block was one of the first boy bands. And so here's a picture of the New Kids on the Block. And, uh, yeah, I mean, so cool, right? Who wouldn't have wanted to use this as a reference point for where they were coming? That's Jordan Knight, the second one in the middle, right? I mean, how cool is that? You're doing the gun thing. I mean, it's just, like, so cool. And uh, those tight shorts, man. And uh, millennials think they're so cool. They got ribbed jeans. We had ripped jeans 30 years ago when we were in high school. Yeah, the, 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 this is who I wanted to be, which Jordan Knight in particular, which I can't believe Patch Peter thought it. I guess it actually worked. I tried to emulate myself after him. This next picture will really give you a sense of how I tried to follow his fashion footsteps in high school. I actually did try the sleeveless vest. I had too much of a pot belly for a skinny guy to pull it off, so the sleeveless vest wouldn't work. But the hoop earrings, I don't know if you can see that on the picture, the silver hoop earrings, that was like... And especially for me, I was the son of a conservative Christian pastor, so I was like really trying to find this delicate balance between Christian but Christian bad boy a little bit. Like if you could wear that like earring, like the Christian girls kind of loved it, you know. And so, of course, my dad would never let me wear an earring because that was against Levitical law or something like that. And so um, every morning when I would go to school, this is nuts that I would do this, but I would take an ice cube to numb my ear. Yeah, it doesn't actually help, so if you're going to do it, you might as well just do it. But I would pierce my ear every morning on the way to school. Uh, hurt like heck. But the nice thing is, if you take it out after school, it's closed by the time you get home. So it was a daily thing. I was so determined to follow in the footsteps of Jordan Knight and have some kind of a clear form of identity of knowing who I am that uh, I would pierce my ear on the way to school every morning. So that's a silly story that gets to a very real thing. Identity formation and the need to know who you are the need to find a place in the world is, if it's not the most driving thing inside of the human soul, it's at the top of the list, right? We all need to know who we are. And that's an important conversation by itself. It's also an important conversation when we get to race in a minute. But let's start here because um, I believe that there has got to be a distinctly Christian perspective on how we think about some of the social ills like race. And so we're going to start with kind of a biblical framework around identity. I'm going to take you what's to what's the most important passage in my own personal walk with God. Um, and I don't think anybody should have the right to say this passage is more important than any other one, but sometimes in your own life it's more important. This, is, this has shaped me more in understanding who God is and who I am in God than any other. Um, it's where all four gospel accounts start with the ministry of Jesus. You know, Jesus lived, you know, 30-something years. We don't know exactly how long, but there was 30-something mostly obscure years. We know almost nothing about the upbringing of Jesus. And when it was time, when it was time for him to be sent out in ministry, to be sent by God to fulfill his mission, all four accounts start with the baptism of Jesus Christ. And I think this is a critical passage for understanding not only who Jesus was as God in the flesh, but who we are as the children of God. So we are going to read Matthew chapter 3. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to open them up. I 
This is Matthew chapter 3. Um, you can read it along with me if you will, or I'll read it and you can follow along is what I really mean to say. So just a short account. This is Matthew's, there's four different versions. This is Matthew's version of the baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And this image that comes next, I, I'm hoping you'll be able to carry this with you. You may have heard this before. Even if you have, try to grasp the depth of this image. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Amen. We'll stop there. That is the Word of God. So to put this in context, Jesus is about to be sent out in ministry. And before being sent out, he needs to have an encounter of identity. Jesus, in human flesh, was bound by many of the same things that we are. He needed to be reminded of who he was. And so in this powerful encounter, it's baptism, there's baptism imagery in it, but so much of what this is about is God the Father telling Jesus who he is. Right, if we tie it back to these questions that we say kind of tend to inform identity, who am I and how do I fit in the world? The answer from God, the Father, the Jesus is this is who you are and how you fit in. You, and there's three parts to it, all three saying the same thing but highlighting different parts. He says, first, you're my son. You are my son. That's who you are. Second, you are the beloved. I love you. That's who you are. And finally, he says, I'm pleased with you. And I love that last one in so many ways because it's important that we know we're loved. But in the baptism of Jesus, we see we're not just loved, we're actually liked. That God takes pleasure in us. And in case that link is hard for you to make, I remember when I first came to this going, well, of course Jesus heard those words, but I can't claim those. Those were Jesus. But that's why I think it's some of the brilliance of the way the story is told. If Jesus would have heard this blessing at the end of his life, I think it would have given, helped us give in to our worst fears that you have to be basically perfect to be loved by God, to be accepted by God, right? And so because of Jesus' track record, because of his achievement, because of what he did for God, he could hear that blessing. But as of this point, Jesus hasn't done anything public for God yet. He hasn't healed anybody. He's not done any miracles. He's not done anything that we might call noteworthy in ministry. This blessing is not in result of what he did or didn't do. It's speaking words to who he is. And this I just cannot say strongly enough. The biblical picture of who we are as human beings is individuals created with this enormous hole inside of us that is looking for a sense of identity. We need, we must answer those questions. Who am I and how do I fit in the world? And so much of what your story and my story will be is one failed attempt after another to answer those questions with something outside of God. And it's understandably so. There, some of us heard parents who or didn't have this blessing that came from a parent, and there's this hole inside of us. Some had the opposite experience and had a parent that was overbearing and made us feel we could never actually be a delight, never could actually hit the mark. But all of us are on this quest. We'll look to our career, to our looks, to a person. We will look for that blessing somewhere. 
And what, what the baptism of Jesus reminds us is that in the same way that Jesus Christ needed this to speak to who he was, so too do we. That there is nothing our souls more badly long for than to hear these words. And I think so much what the Christian life is, it's kind of like you can hear what I just said intellectually, and then there's the degree to which it actually registers in your heart and soul. Right? And that's what a lot of the Christian life is, is learning how to take this body of information and allow the Spirit of God to take it into the deepest recesses of who you are and to trust that that's a process. And that's some of what transformation is. That's some of what the renovation of the heart and soul is, is God prying away some of the things we used to look for to identify us and replacing with this, allowing us to experience this. In fact, part of my personal discipline, I think this passage is so important. I think it's the air we're meant to breathe. I literally, every day of my life, at some point during the day, get on my knees and I say, God, in fact, I do this many times a day, oftentimes, I say, God, speak those words to me again. Remind me, I am your son. Remind me, I am your beloved. Remind me that you delight in me, that you take pleasure in me. Right? Jesus wasn't doing this just because he needed it. He was showing us where ministry with God begins. We don't go do a bunch of work for God and then come back and check in to see if we got a blessing or not. We internalize deeply this blessing and from there go into the world. All right, now, I want to do kind of like just a pause there. I want to just kind of set that there and let that sit there because what we're going to talk about next is not different, uh, but I think until you get this, it makes it complicated to move into this next realm. So we're going to take a little bit of a turn and start to explore race a little bit. You, all, you can make that turn with me for a minute. Uh, let's talk about race, and then we'll connect this to what happens next in the biblical account. This word race, though, this is going to part where it's going to just the nature of this topic. It's going to get a little bit heavier talking about this, but I think it's really important that we do. Um, to be able to really define the word race, I think we have to first pull it apart from some of the words that get used synonymously with it that I don't think should. In fact, they're quite different from each other. So let me start by pulling out a couple of words. Repeat these with me, if you will. Ethnicity and culture. I want to pull those away from race because they're very different, even though they get used interchangeably. Like you'll hear a church say, want to be multi-ethnic, multiracial, you hear racial, whatever. These get used together. They shouldn't be. Let me make a fast case for the kind of contrast between these. Ethnicity and culture, if I can group those together in the interest of time. Ethnicity and culture, I would say, are direct reflections of God. They are created by God. Right? God, from the very beginning, created humankind in God's image. And part of creating us in God's image, there was all this variety in how we look. We have different skin tones, different skin colors, fine hair, kinky hair. We've got all different kinds of the, the way, the different parts you know, of our face. You know, there's just all different kinds of differentiation, right, in how God created us, right? And then from there and from where people live and from where they grew up, different kind of cultures that arise from that. I would say that's a direct reflection of God's creation. It's not perfect. It needs to be redeemed, just like people are. People are created in God's image but are still sinful and need to be redeemed. So is ethnicity and culture. It's created by God to be redeemed, to give glory to God. All right. um, I don't have a slide on this, but um, I'm not going to say much more about colorblindness, but just to like make the point under ethnicity and culture, um, I don't think we should ever uh, consider colorblindness as an approach for many reasons, one being of which God is not colorblind. Right, write this passage down. Revelation 7, 9. There's actually a couple different places. But Revelation, when it describes the redeemed humanity that is with God, Revelation 7, 9 says that when God looks out at the chorus singing to God, God will very clearly see ethnic and cultural differences. God will very clearly hear the differences of the linguistic tongue. That ethnic and cultural difference is part of God's good creation. I think when done right, it's really wonderful to celebrate the differences that come with ethnic and um, cultural um, diversity. Okay. Now, in contrast, I want to talk about this word race. 
right? Race is something very different. If culture and ethnicity are created by God, race is not. Race is created by humankind. If culture and diversity are reflections of God that can be redeemed, I want to say it's as strong as possible. Race is not. It is not from God. It does not reflect God. And it cannot be redeemed because it is 100% to its core an evil invention. Right, most who study race would say it's a pretty new project in the grand scheme of human history, probably less, you could pretty clearly say less than 400 years old. And at the heart of race, there's so much we could say about this, but I want to boil it down if I can. Um, at the heart of race is this sinful, evil, dark attempt to not only separate people, but in creating, you know, of course, these, these categories based on race are very artificial, right? Like, what all is white? What all is Asian American? What all is Latino? What all is black, right? The, even the categories themselves, we can see that human-made categories are, are, are silly. What's dangerous, not even that we group people, what's dangerous is we grouped people, and then here's the most important line I'm going to say about race. We grouped people and then said, where you fall on the racial spectrum delineates your human worth and value. We didn't just separate people into racial categories based on perceived physical characteristics that we assigned arbitrary meaning to. We said, based on where you fall in that racial hierarchy determines your human value. All right? Uh, there's lots of examples I'd like to give. Let me give just one because I think it helps to drive it home. I'm going to use some terminology from Brian Stevenson, who founded an organization called Equal Justice Initiative, wrote a wonderful book called Just Mercy. Now, he uses this term the narrative of racial difference. This will be my last call and response. Will you say that phrase with me? The narrative of racial difference. Will you say that? The narrative of racial difference. I want you to be thinking about that term. Uh, I think this gets to it well. He says, the narrative of racial difference is what established this social construct of race. And what the narrative of racial difference does is recognizes racial difference, which again, I've tried to make the case. That's not bad. I think recognizing ethnic and cultural differences can be a positive thing. The narrative of racial difference recognizes these racial differences and assigns human value to them. And it was created for the purpose to excuse, to justify some of the worst kind of human projects that have happened. By time, I would show how the human, the narrative of racial difference is, goes hand in hand with colonization. I think that's an important piece. I'm not going to do that one. I'm going to, I'm going to use the one he most commonly does, which is slavery. All right? This, I think, is the, one of the clearest ways we can see the diabolical nature of the narrative of racial difference. Right? When he's training, he often does mixed race environments, but for white Christians in particular who are struggling with what does slavery have to do with our context today, right? That happened so long ago. What does that have to do? He asks a philosophical question that I want you to engage in as well because I think it unearths some things that need to be unearthed. And he says this particularly to white Christians, but, you know, I think the question is relevant beyond. But to white Christians, he says this. He says, let's consider this. How is it that in at least the North American context where we're keeping this to now, how is it that so many white Christians were not only okay with the system of slavery, but endorsed it? Right? Slavery could not have existed in the United States if white Christians would not have gotten behind it and preached it, even in its favor. There's always that select few who stood up against it, and I thank God for their witness. But in totality, white Christians very much got behind this. Right? Now he asks, how could they read their Bible and about the God of the Bible, who created all humankind in God's image, and yet totally be okay with having a plantation full of slaves, right? Some of the greatest white theologians that we still refer to all the time were prolific slave owners. And how is it that they were able to justify owning slaves? Brian Stevens says the only answer that makes sense is the narrative of racial difference, that this system of race started to take shape, started to take form, 
And what the system of race said is that some people are more human. In this case, it was white, right? That white is fully human. And in the case of slavery, that black people were less than human. And that the only way you could justify it, secular or Christian, was by adopting this narrative, by buying into this narrative that there's a sliding scale of humankind. And, you know, we captured this in historical documents in the U.S. Constitution when there was argument over how taxation would happen. Black people in the Constitution were called three-fifths human. A lot of people don't know that. It was in the Constitution. The amendment overturned it, thank God. But it captured very much the narrative, right? You, you couldn't have a more concrete example of the mathematics behind the narrative of racial difference, that white equaled five-fifths human, that black equal three-fifths human, and that everybody that's not one of those two has to find their value within the sliding scale. That is the narrative of racial difference. And that helps draw a line between historical things that have come and gone and the sickness that we are still fighting today. As Brian Stevenson says so eloquent, and I agree, he says, people see that slavery got toppled in 1865, and that's good, it needed to get toppled. But there's a difference between toppling the institution and uprooting the narrative that allowed the institution to exist in the first place. And we have never had a united effort to uproot the narrative or even name it. And in churches, we don't do a good job of naming this. And let me make one last point on here to just hope, in the hopes of developing kind of a biblical framework for addressing this. Oftentimes, race gets talked of as a social issue, and it is at least a social issue. There's very clear social ills that come from it. But we do not understand race correctly if we think of it as a social issue primarily. At its core, in the belly of this social system, it is a spiritual issue because it's built on a lie. It's a sickness built on a lie that human worth is tied to where somebody falls on the racial spectrum. Sometimes I'm I'm not introducing the terminology of spiritual warfare or the devil up until now because sometimes it can sound almost spooky. But this is the point where we need to call it evil and call it the the devil's playground in a lot of ways. And here's why. Um, Though it can sound spooky to talk about the devil, Jesus, when he described the devil, used really one word to describe him. And it's actually the exact meaning of the devil. You know what the devil means? You know what the word diabolos means? It just simply means liar. The devil does his work through lies. It starts in the Garden of Eden. We see the devil. It's not like God says, here's paradise, and the devil says, I have a different paradise. Come with me. All the devil can do is confuse, call into question that which God said. I want to take you to a verse in John chapter 8, because I think it's really important to see the supernatural element of this. This is how Jesus talked about the devil to those who actually were religious but were buying into a system of lies. This is why I think we cannot be Christians and not talk about this stuff because of the nature of how the devil works. This is John chapter 8, verses 44. This is, the, this is Jesus talking about the devil. And remember, we just looked at the baptism of Jesus where the words of the Father became the blessing by which Jesus lives by. What Jesus is going to show here is everybody lives under the words of one of two fathers. There's the Father in heaven who speaks truth of who we are, creating God's image. And then there's the devil who he calls the father of lies. He talks about how the devil wanted to carry out um, people who give in to lies. And how it's given so go so far who fail to expose lies. Harshly, Jesus says, you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Before you switch, truth is how Jesus talks about himself, right? You will know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Right? John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Right? That's what this is really about, is truth and lies. For there's no truth in him. Now, just listen to this part. Listen, this is how Jesus describes the devil. When he lies, when the devil lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar. 
and he is the father of lies. Right? So Jesus says the same thing in three different ways to make the point. He lies, his native tongue is that of lies, and at a fundamental level, he's a father. He is the father of lies. Anything that's a lie in the created domain belongs to the devil. That is the weapon of choice for how the devil works in society is to try to take lies and use those to distort God's truth. And that is why it is so critical that anybody who cares about following Jesus Christ understands what's in the underbelly of the system of race. It's all set of lies. And at the center of that set of lies is this single lie that human worth is tied to where somebody falls on the racial spectrum. Now, you may say, I don't believe that lie, and great, I don't think you'd probably come to this church if you believe that lie. That's not my point, is trying to figure out who's racist in here and who's not racist in here. I don't actually think that actually does much good to change things. What I'm trying to say is there's a battle happening that's bigger than, between, than us, and it's between the father who speaks truth and the devil who speaks lies, and it's a sickness, and it infects everybody. Right, just to make one more theological connection to this, let's come... Let's come I'm not going to read this one because of time, but in terms of sequence, we were at the baptism of Jesus. We listened to these words. When you go to your, your Bibles and look at any of the four accounts of the sequence from the baptism of Jesus to what happens next, it's the same thing that happens immediately next in all four cases. Anybody want to show off and tell me what happens right after the baptism of Jesus? Where does Jesus go after the baptism? Yes, into the wilderness. We've got a good A-plus Sunday school student up here up front. So the temptation with the devil in the wilderness is the very next thing that happens right after the baptism, which let me just take a step macro-wise and just, just to put this into perspective. So here you get Jesus coming back now to this baptism experience. Jesus has this incredible identity encounter, right? God the Father speaks these words. You're my son. You're my beloved. I take delight in you. The very next thing that happens is he goes toe-to-toe with the devil who challenges everything he just heard. And if you want to just kind of like flip through um, um, Matthew 4 in the back, I'm not going to go through it because um, I'm trying to take really a bird's-eye view of this. There's three temptations that happen as Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the devil in the desert. And while each three, while there's merit in looking at the uniqueness of each three, the thread that goes through all three of these is a direct assault from the devil, who Diablos, the liar, who tries to challenge that which what God just said. The temptations start by the devil saying, if you are the Son of God. That word, if, is the lie. If you are the Son of God, then do this, then do this, then do this. And if I can be so bold that to summarize the entire Christian life through this a sentence between those two passages, this is the whole battle in our lives, is God trying to remind you and tell you for the first time if you've not heard it and live into that you're God's daughter, that is God's beloved, that God is pleased with, and that there's a devil that's trying to undercut that that's trying to challenge that, that's trying to get you to think you have to look somewhere besides God to truly find your sense of value, that's the whole thing that's happening in life. That is the battle we are caught up in, is between a God who speaks truth over us and a devil who would confuse that with lies. And while that battle has context outside of the system of race as well, I think, and if I had the time, I would make this case. I think at a macro level, you can make the case, and I strongly believe this, that there is no set of lies by itself that more strongly informs how people in our modern era think of themselves than the set of lies that goes with this social construct of race. The messaging around that, that some people are more valuable and some people are less valuable. 
that your sense of worth should be determined by which racial group you fell in. That if you're white, you should think you're better than other people. Right? For my white brothers and sisters who are here, of course you wouldn't be coming to this place if you think that. That's not what I'm saying. But that's what everything out there is saying. That whiteness is what's most valuable. It's the white school you want to go. It's the white neighborhood you want to live in. It's white whatever that is where things are most safe and valuable and esteemed. That's the lie that's being told all the time. The lie is being told all the time that black is still less than human. And that, that lie is threaded through everything. And that lie tells you, if you're Latino, if you're Asian American, if you're mixed race, that you need to try to come to sorts with who you are within this racial rubric of a sliding scale of human worth. And all I'm hoping for today is that we will be able to see this contest happening between truth and lies, between a Jesus who says you'll know the truth and be set free, and between a Jesus who says be careful of the Father who tells lies. And when you see it like that, I think it changes the approach of how you come after this. So heavy, I know I can feel it in here even as we wrestle with it. Let, let me try to turn the corner and kind of offer up some three concrete ways that I would hope, you know, I, I realize there's conversations that we can have under all this, but I think this is a template. This is a template from Scripture for how to think of ourselves within this. I kind of think of it as a level one and a level two. I think level one is what we're talking about, about trying to see how the lies impact us at an individual level, and that's my hope for today. I think level two is when you go even further and say, how has the lies of the enemy kind of set the stage for the systems and structures that we have in society, how you can actually see that lie playing out in hospitals and grammar schools and high schools and in neighborhoods and places that serve people in different ways, how that lie is actually being told in lots of institutions. Um, I just simply mention that because that's where eventually we want the conversation to go. But today, I want us to consider how that set of truth and lies is landing on each one of us and what we can do. So let me try to turn it to concrete now, all right? First concrete idea, as you walk away with this, if you'll reflect on this, here's the first thing I would like to offer up for you to consider. When we look at the baptism of Jesus, which we did in Matthew 3 or in any of the other accounts, I would like to suggest that that account of the baptism of Jesus is the single most important reference point in terms of thinking about who we are and who God wants us to be. All right, to put a metaphor on it, um, we'll just use a metaphor, a simple word of the rope. Say the rope. Still with me? The rope. Say the rope. Uh, you may have heard this metaphor before. It's from Park, Parker, Parker Palmer in his book, Hidden Wholeness, but it's used a lot in Pastor Pete's Cazero stuff on Emotionally Healthy Church, and I know you guys use that curriculum a lot, which I think is wonderful. Parker Palmer tells this metaphor that I think is so helpful for what we're talking about. He tells how farmers in the Midwest, which is where I'm from, I'm Chicago, how there's this long history of farmers in the Midwest that when blizzards would come during the wintertime, that there are all these stories of farmers who would go out from the, from the home to go attend to livestock or to go pull something back in that had gotten you know, pushed out. And even though they were traveling only a few feet from home, the, the blizzard would come in so intensely, the, intenseness, the intensity of whiteness would come in so much that they actually couldn't see around them. And they would not actually be able to find their way back just a few feet to their home. And they would actually get frostbite and die outside. And so simple but novel idea at farmers came up. They said, if I'm going to go out into that scary kind of environment, I need to tie a rope around my waist and tie it to something solid inside my home. And then when I go outside into the blizzard to attend to whatever I need to attend to, when that happens, when the intensity of this blizzard comes and I can't see straight and panic sets in, I go, oh, wait, I've got this rope around my waist. I just need to follow this back home. 
Right? I'm convinced, not just in, right, with everything in the spiritual life, the blessing that we are designed to receive from God the Father, a lit within us by the Holy Spirit, is home base. That is what we're designed for. We will all walk away from that because we're sinners. Some of us will do it like the younger prodigal and just say, forget it, I don't want it. Some of us will do it like older prodigals and have a very religious cold heart that's unable to do it. At the end of the day, whether you go out the front porch or the back porch, everybody's got to come back home. That's what we're designed for is to immerse ourselves in that blessing, to come back to it time and time again. If you're seeking Christian faith right now and you want a bottom line, this is the bottom line, I believe. God the Father has invited us to live deeply from that sense of blessing, to come into faith through Jesus Christ, who's died and whose sacrifice we will celebrate and receive through the, the gift of communion in a moment. That's home. That's what we're always coming back to. And I don't think we should even try to tangle with the, not only social, but the dark forces under it of race until we know that. We need to know where home is at and where we're trying to get everybody to come back to. And then from there, we can go out into these kind of scary waters, into these you know, blizzard, so to speak, where we're, we're, we're going to get disoriented because we have the rope to bring us back home. That, I think, is without question the most important thing I'm saying. Are you tracking with me so far? But then to honor the fact that this social system of race that none of us created, because it was here long before we, were, we breathed our first breath, right? But this sickness that we were born into, this set of lies that is everywhere around us, whether you disagree with it or not, whether you're conscious of it or not, I would argue it's around us and, and we're breathing it in all the time. This, this set of lies that says, to bo- that discredits both sides of the great commandments. Right? In the great commandment, Jesus says it's all about love, right? It's loving God with all of our hearts, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he says that it's to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, right? Both parts of that. We, we are to come into a deeper knowledge of how to love ourselves and love our neighbor. And that's where I'll give these last two concrete things. These are actually in your bulletin, so you can kind of consider these as you walk out. But so if, if, if concrete kind of number one thing is to consider is this kind of rope idea and coming back home. This is what needs to undergird everything. Then as we consider this social system of race, this sickness that we've been born into, <coughs> excuse me, we need to engage in deep self-reflection in the way that system has shaped us that the messaging has shaped our sense of identity. Remember, I'm saying identity is largely driven by these questions. Who am I and how do I fit in the world? I'm not saying you subscribe to it. Again, I think you probably don't if you come here. It doesn't change the fact that for every day you've been alive, this messaging has constantly been bombarding into your mind. You've been breathing this air in. It's in all of us. It's in me as a white male. It's in whatever racial group you fall in. You have heard messaging around your own sense of value. And I appreciate that there's a courage and a tenacity within this body to name some of those things. I've heard so many stories just this weekend of people telling me of growing up in environments where even in their own household, a parent who, you know, I don't think meant to perpetuate this the way it did, but it would say to the lighter-skinned one, wow, you, you, you have all these features that are so beautiful and so fair. And to the darker-skinned one to say, don't go in the sun if you can help it, right? I'm trying to help you, right? Like that reinforces these notions that, where we fall, or even how we're perceived to fall in this racial category, affects our value. I just had a Dominican brother, after this first service, just open up in the way how, from the time he was little, his family used to tell me he has bad hair, and how, and he's very dark-skinned for a Dominican, and how that was profoundly impactful as he grew up. Right? So some of us, it's more visceral. The pain is very visceral. Some of us, we've never thought about it for a moment. 
Like as a white person, I never really had to think about that because I was not conscious of the way the racial structure was telling me I should derive value from being white. But it doesn't change the fact I heard that message all my life growing up. And there's a deep self-reflection that's necessary to say, in what ways has the lies behind the social construct of race had some kind of an impact on my own identity development? Even if you feel you've successfully negotiated that, um, being able to name that and see it and come back again to the robe, coming back home again, I think is a key thing. And then third and final concrete thing, this system of race has not only shaped how we've come to understand ourselves, I would argue it's impossible to be exposed to the system of race and not to some degree internalize how you view others. It shapes how we view other people. Right? Dr. Beverly Tatum, who wrote my favorite book on cultural identity development, is called um, why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? It's a wonderful book. Um, but she tells a story. She's a, a black woman, used to be the, the president of Spelman College. But she's talking about doing a seminar and, you know, in a set, setting like this, in a cross-cultural seminar. And she's talking about some of the history of race. And she has this white guy who comes up to her afterwards. He just happened to be white. I think anybody could have done this. But it was a white guy who did it. And he considers himself woke. And he's very excited about the contents. And so he goes, give, means to give her a compliment. And he says to her, he says, that was so good, that session. And you were so articulate during that session. He says, I swear I could have closed my eyes eyes and listen to you, and I could have sworn you were a white woman. Right? Now, when I tell a story like that, I'm not saying, wow, look at that, there's stupid people out there, we should you know, not be like that. I'm actually telling for the exact opposite reason. I'm saying, that's in all of us. That is in all of us. And if we make the goal being politically correct, we're never going to unearth the stuff that has to be unearthed and given to Christ and redeemed. This lie that says, some people are more capable, some people are less capable. Another story, uh, Darius, I think it was his name, and he said I could share this. Darius came, African-American guy, works uh, in a special needs environment. He said, it breaks my heart every week I come in because even in this special needs community, even the parents, he said, you can see they have one set of expectations for the lighter-skinned kids, and they have a different set of expectations for the darker-skinned kids. Right? That's happening there. That's happening in school. That's happening everywhere because we've all been infected by this thing. I think it doesn't do anybody good to point fingers and figure out who's more woke and who's less woke. There's no, no life in that. What we need to do is say Christ has created all of us to find our meaning and value from those words of God. But instead of just saying, so let's just all do that, which we do need to do, to acknowledge the impact of the sickness and to acknowledge that there's a spiritual force behind it that lies and would prefer to keep us in the confusion of the lies. So we must follow the rope back to the Jesus who says, I am truth. And in truth, you will experience freedom. And I know that's what you already want. I hope that this helps give a little bit of a biblical reference for how to continue to hold that rope as we deal with the system of race. Amen? Join me as we pray, if you will, as we prepare our hearts to receive of this gift of the Lord's Supper.